Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll man's view the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 16th, 2013, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, the number is 866-65-THINK. For those of you that do not have letters on your phone for one reason or another, 866-658-4465. Again, 866-658-4465. Uh, make a call to that number. You will not hear, Hi, this is Jack. You're on the air. What's your question or comment, caller? What you'll hear is a voice message. You'll leave me a voice message. It'll come to me in an email, and then I'll screen through it. And if you follow the rules, there's a good chance you'll end up on the show. The rules. Call from a quiet location. That's rule number one. Rule number two, if you're using a cell phone, make sure you have a few bars on it. Don't call with one bar blinking on and off. You're going to sound like this. I, 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 and I'm not going to use your call. Rule number three, make your point or ask your question first. Don't give me any details before you do that. Say, Jack, I want to know if, or Jack, I was thinking that, bam. Then put all the details you want after that. It will help so much, I promise you. Trust me, I'm a professional. This is what I do for a living. In all seriousness, it really will help you make a better call, and it will make it more likely to end up using your call on the air. All right, uh, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth has all the things that you need to live that tactical lifestyle From Magpul magazines to the awesome titanium spork and everything in between, if it's tactical and practical, they have it at Sawtooth. You'll find them at sawtooth.sawtac.com. Uh, uh, they also do a discount for member support brigade members. So if you are an MSB member, please make sure you use your discount when ordering from them so that you get that return of investment that I always promise you when I talk about the member support brigade. Next up today is KnifeKits.com. Whether you are a master bladesmith that is looking for the finest materials or you're a new person to making knives that just wants a kit and some instruction and some help so you can make something unique and custom without becoming you know, a, a master artesian, you can do anything from one end of that spectrum to the other with KnifeKits.com. They also have great Kydex uh, kits for making Kydex holsters, not just for knives but for guns and other cool stuff. Check them out at KnifeKits.com, and they, too, do a discount for the Member Support Brigade. On the MSB, let's get right to that one today, because I want to remind you I have a sale going on. You can join the Member Support Brigade now for $40 a year versus $30 a year. Uh, $40, I'm sorry, $40 a year versus um, $50 a year. Save $10, bucks. that's about 20%, so it's a good sale. That sale was going to run until midnight on Sunday. It's not going to run until midnight on Monday. I screwed up. There's a little box I'm supposed to take that says, Do not limit the date range of this coupon. I didn't click it, so it expired on you, and people that tried to use it this morning, it didn't work. And I had to fight with it because it didn't want to accept me and changed. And one guy, I had to mess with it like three times before it finally worked for you. But it worked for him. That means it'll work for everybody else. So the coupon code is MSBAUG, M-S-B-A-U-G for MSB August. And uh, it'll get you that 10 bucks off. You can use it in the form if you pay by mail. Just write it on the uh, form. We'll accept anything mailed with a postmark of Monday. Uh, the uh, What is it? Monday the 19th. 
Monday the 19th or earlier, we'll accept. Uh, it doesn't have to get to us by then. It just has to be postmarked by then. I uh, probably won't run another sale until up around Thanksgiving, Christmas this time. So if you're looking for a sale, this is a good time to join if you haven't joined yet. The MSB is awesome, by the way. If you're buying stuff in the preparedness, homesteading world, it pays for itself. I, I mean, I'll leave it at that. Then it has a bunch of other cool stuff as well. And you support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, but it's actually lower. I didn't do the math, but it's lower when you get the discount. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a service discount. It is better than the current sale, and it applies to recurring, and it allows you to use it on any membership term, monthly, you know, six-month, three-month, however you want to use it. So it's a better deal all around. It's a way I thank you for your service to our country at home and or, and or abroad. Uh, just email me with service discount in the subject line, and uh, in a sentence or two, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're a prior service, who you are and what you did. Please understand, when I get an email from somebody that says, I was in the National Guard for four years, but it was 20 years ago, do I qualify? Yes, 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 you do. I was a firefighter for four years, and then I quit that, and now I, you know, rope cattle or something. Do I qualify? Yes. If you've done that job or are doing any of those jobs, you qualify for the discount. Please take it. Some people say they feel bad about taking it. Don't feel bad about it. It's there for a reason. I, I really appreciate service-oriented individuals, and it's how I repay you for your service. It's the one small thing I can do. If you're going to join anyway, please partake of it and let me do that for you. Um, real quick before I get into your call today, I do want to say something that I say once in a while that I need to probably say more often to be genuine with, with this. Um, I do get emails from people. I listen to you every day, and I wish I could be joining the MSB, but right now I'm paying off debt or whatever it is, and I just can't do it right now. And I feel, don't feel bad. Don't join until you have your house in order. I mean that. I really do. Uh, this is something extra. Now, if while you're putting your house in order, you are doing a lot of things where you are buying certain things, and the, and the membership will therefore pay for itself and be profitable, then yes, that's a business decision. But if you're not in that mode and you're not in a mode to stand financially on your feet yet, don't join. It's 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 a it's an additional thing. It's not a requirement to listen. I also get people like I, I would join but I don't listen anymore. I don't know. I the other end of that is if you buy this stuff it still pays for itself. So whatever. It's not really connected to listening. It's connected to supporting the show if you feel the need to do so and are of a place in life where you can do so and then get a return of investment. I really can't explain it any better. Anyway, uh, I've got some calls queued up for you. I've got two today that are for Steve Harris. I don't have any other expert member, uh, council member uh, questions lined up. But remember, if you go to the website and look at any Friday show, you'll see a list of all the expert council members. Uh, they are Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants, Joe Nobody from Holding Your Ground, Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com, who does all livestock and farm management questions, Ben Falk of Home System, Whole Systems Design, that specializes in permaculture questions specifically for the northeastern United States. Paul Wheaton of permies.com that would specialize in permaculture questions specifically to the northwestern climates. Along with all things rocket stovish, I would say Paul is a, is a great resource on. Uh, Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus, Bug Out Vehicles Military Sur Surplus, and Communications Gear. 
Stephen Harris of Solar One, Two, Three, Four, all things energy, including rocket stoves. I think I would I would make a decision on those uh, rocket stove questions between Steve and uh, Paul based on what type of stove application you're talking about. And then Chef Keith Snow of Harvest Eating for all your uh, your cooking questions. Uh, I am thinking about after uh, after yesterday's interview with uh, with Kerry Davis, asking him to join as uh, as a medical expert on the uh, panel. And if he would be so kind as to accept the obligations to come along with that, uh, with that. If you think that's a good idea before I tender the invitation, I always try to ask audience members on some stuff like this. Just let me, just give me a comment in today's show, not yesterday's show, uh, but today's show where I'm asking you, which again, today's show is episode 1188, and say, yeah, I think Harry'd make a great member of the council and I'd have questions for him. That's the big thing. I, I don't like to bring a person on, like, guys, we haven't had a question for Joe Nobody forever. I don't know if the guy even remembers me at this point. So, uh, you know, if you guys really want to uh, help me make this program better, take a look at the people there. And, uh, you know, we give Steve Harris a workout, and it's great that he's kind of the most popular member of the council, but let's spread some stuff out to some other people. And uh, if you guys would have questions for Kerry Davis, uh, I'd be happy to add him as a council member, again, if he'll accept. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first call today. Hey, Jack, John in West Virginia. I've got one of the Steve Harris uh, ethanol steels make your own gas deal my question is is I keep getting ants in my mash bucket and it kind of concerns me uh, what could I do or uh, is it really a problem alright thanks a lot Well, hi, John. Interesting question, man. Um, not a problem I've ever had before. I guess you must have your mash bucket outside in like a shed or a barn or something like that, which is fine, especially uh, if you're looking for warmer temperatures, fast fermentation, high alcohol yields, That, that that's fine. I mean, I wouldn't do it with beer because uh, too high of a temperature, you can get some off flavors and taste. You're going to be distilling this stuff anyway, uh, so it's probably not an issue. Now, I'm trying to tap dance around something here without saying it. Um, Steve Harris has this little bitty moonshine still that sits up on your countertop and it makes ethanol. And you can run it through there enough times and then do some things to get the last bit of uh, moisture out of it at the end and you can use it to make fuel. And it's really when it comes to making fuel, ethanol fuel for a vehicle, a great teaching tool. And that's really what it is. I mean, you'd have to maybe get four or five of these things and, and, and change things up a little bit to, to do any kind of meaningful production with it for a vehicle. But it's a great teaching tool and it does work and it uses very little power and it, it runs all by itself on a timer and it's cool. It's awesome. And if you're making, fuel with this thing, I wouldn't even worry about ants getting in there other than they might be kind of annoying. They ain't going to hurt a daggone thing. Um, they may actually contribute uh, some minerals, nutrients for the yeast, and there might be, uh, I don't, there's probably not any fermentables in an ant. They're probably 100% protein and, uh, and fat, but uh, there might be some minerals and they just wouldn't harm anything at all. If you were uh, going to use this for, um, with John Air Quotes, medicinal purposes, and I'll leave it at that, um, they might put some off flavors in the vodka that you're basically creating here. And, and I mean, you, 
you can do that with a still like this. It's probably a good idea to toss out uh, the first bit of distillate because that's where you would get uh, your, your heads. And I'm not going to get into how you do all that today, but I'm just going to tell you that when you make ethanol for uh, for fuel, you're making the same thing a hillbilly makes with a moonshine still. And I just want people to understand that that is a capability, though it is illegal to do so. It is a capability of what this device will do. Just saying. Um, and if you were doing it for that, not to say that you would be, but if you were, you might want to get them ants the hell out of there because they probably aren't good for the overall um, final medicinal product, though they would probably contribute almost nothing, and they certainly wouldn't be harmful. Now, how can we get rid of them, though, if we want to? Uh, one thing we could do is we could get ourselves a great big, you know, wash tub type thing, um, and it, you know, fill it with water a few inches deep, and then we could set our fermentation bucket in the center of that, and you probably wouldn't have a problem with ants anymore. There might be some drowning in that bucket, uh, and they can get creative enough. They might build a little land bridge, a little ant bridge across it, but it's probably not going to happen. That probably would solve your problem uh, right there. The other option is to bring your fermentation uh, bucket into your house. And if you do that, then you know it can sit in a closet somewhere or something like that and quietly do its thing, and it's probably going to be less likely to attract ants unless you got ants in the house. Those are the two ways I would get rid of them. But if I was making ethanol for fuel, and I had my little nifty permit from the United States government, and when I was done making it, I was putting my 2% of gasoline in there to make it all legal-like and uh, doing it to run a vehicle, uh, I wouldn't even care. And if I was doing it for medicinal purposes, I might care. But, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You can, again, you guys can draw conclusions on, on what this would be, you know, usable for and whether or not you would want to know that. Um, I do think that, you know, there's a little cottage industry out there of people making alcohol for medicinal purposes with distillation and, uh, What I can say is that I haven't heard of anybody being messed with for doing that. I think that most of the ATF agents out there are trying to track down the guys that are, you know, making gallons and gallons and gallons of this stuff and selling it. I, I don't think anybody really cares what you're doing in your own home with something like this. It, it just seems to be ignored. Uh, but if you put it out there publicly, it may not be. Um, that said, I've seen people <laughs> on YouTube with pot stills, cooking on their stove, making moonshine, showing people how to do it. Uh, and just black, and not saying, you know, this is for making fuel for your car. Just And, you know, I, I don't think I would do that. I'm, I'm just saying, no, it's a possibility and it can be done. And it's something that maybe you'd want to know you had the capability of. If nothing else, you know, um, it'd run on a pretty small battery bank. And if, if the uh, shit had hit the fan and we were in a uh, without rule of law society anyway, it might be interesting to know that you could do that. And then you do whatever you want with that knowledge. Kind of like, you know, a lot of things that are out there. There are information on how to do things you're not necessarily supposed to do, but the information's valid and what you do with it is your own damn business. Uh, that's the biggest tap dance I've ever done in my life around an issue. And uh, you guys can figure it out from there. But If you've been considering getting one of those from Steve, you just might want to know that that is a function it could perform if you chose to make it do so. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Karim from Chicago calling. Um, just wondering what your thoughts are on the Chinese moving to position themselves as the global currency. Thursday, August 15th, and news broke this morning that the Chinese were dumping their treasuries and buying gold, and it seems like 
they've caused a drop in the dollar market and are kind of positioning themselves yet further. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, there's really two questions there, and they've been combined into one, which creates confusion. And it's not uh, in any way, uh, not by design from media. Okay, that they want the confusion, so you'll panic and freak out and, and what have you. First question really is, is China angling to be the world's global currency, and do they have a chance of pulling it off? The answer is yes, with some qualifiers and, and, and maybe taking the word the global currency out of the answer. But let's shelve that for a second, and let's look at the Chinese are dumping their treasuries and buying gold in an effort, I mean, just... That's how it gets reported, and that's how it's been reported. But the reality is it's not just China. It's China and Japan who've sold off a lot of their long-term U.S. treasuries. The, the whole world did this last month to the tune of $66.9 billion. That seems like a lot, but remember, our total debt load is in the neighborhood of $17 trillion. China holds about one. $1.2 trillion of U.S. debt, and Japan holds about $1 trillion of U.S. debt. So combined, $2.2 trillion in change. Of the $60 billion that was dumped, Japan and China dumped $40.8 billion, or just call it $41 billion. $41 billion is less than, uh, it's a little bit more than 1%, okay, It's a little bit more than 1% of the $2.2 trillion, like 1.8% or 1.3% or something like that. It's around 1%. So when we hear numbers like billions and trillions, it, it tends to confuse the hell out of us because we don't think that way as normal human beings. There's probably not a billionaire out there listening to the Survival Podcast. And I don't know of any trillionaires that exist. Countries are trillionaires, not, not people. Um, a billion is a thousand million. Okay, and a trillion is a thousand billion. It's 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 mind-boggling. But at a one percent, um, in fact, I, I think my math is wrong. I don't even think it's one percent to tell you the truth. No, that's right. It would be about one percent. One percent of uh, of actually no, it'd be about two percent. One percent of two trillion dollars. Uh, would be about $20 billion. So they dumped about 40 So they dumped about 2% of their holdings. Uh, I just want to make sure I got that right. Sometimes when I'm throwing math together in my head, I, I get it a little bit wrong and people freak out. Say, oh, I can't trust you. Whatever. Um, so it's about 2%. Let's call it 2%. So this would be like if you had someone who had loaned you money and you were terrified uh, because you had loaned them let's say, uh, $100, and they had gotten rid of $2 worth of your loan. They had said, we need $2 back from you, or we're going to sell your debt to somebody else for $2, because we're, we're going to reduce our holdings, and now we're only going to hold $98. That's pretty much what happened. And that's not really significant in the global scheme of things with the amount of money that's floating around out there. Um, why did they do this? Uh, all countries are divesting themselves of long-term U.S. debt slowly over time, uh, specifically smart countries that have a shit ton of it. The problem for them is they can't dump and buy gold. If they start dumping, they will destroy their own economies. This has to be done slowly and methodically over time. 
whenever you hear this, they're dumping and buying gold. Yes, they are, but the amounts are so insignificant in the short term, you can't overreact to it. You have to, again, realize that the media wants to keep your brain in a checkers game mode. When the global elites, the Chinese, our own elites, the elites all over the world, are not just playing chess, they're playing like the 3D space chess like you see on Star Trek. They're thinking 15, 20 years into the future, and, and the media wants your brain thinking tomorrow. Because that that's what makes you tune in tomorrow and pay attention to their irrelevant asses. So what's what's there is not insignificant, but it's not anywhere near of the alarmist nature of the way that it's being reported. You can hear this caller, they're dumping treasuries and buying gold. And when you when you divest yourself of, you know, one percent of something, it hardly qualifies as dumping. It really and that the truth is the Chinese don't have a good home for their one point two trillion dollars worth of US debt right now. They don't have a better home than our debt instruments. It's the best deal in the world, and it sucks. And they can't have the U.S. economy tank at this point in juncture in time because they are more dependent on us for our consumerism than they are for our debt and the interest on our debt. And they know that that is a that's an endgame move. And they're getting a lot of um, use out of the game right now, and they can't go to endgame right now because in the end, both sides lose. Kind of like mutually assured destruction. Right now, we have kind of an economic stalemate in the globe where if any major nation engages in economic warfare on any other major nation, it pretty much brings down everybody. Uh, unlike nuclear warfare, there's a lot more left to recover with, but it's still absolutely crippling. And for a nation as large as China with um, as many people as China has, you know, we talk about if the U.S. economy implodes, could there be a, uh, you know, a breakup of the nation uh, into member states and into a, a secession or just a fall apart, kind of like what happened in the Soviet Union. And, and the truth is a nation like China would have a much greater potential for that to occur. Um, you know, there's rural parts of China that are like, we don't really give a damn about Beijing. Um, I think we have this belief that it, that's only the way it is here. That, you know, the country boys and the city boys and that type of thing and politics being, uh, you know, deeply divided based on population densities and things like that. And, you know, we have tough mountain rugged people and we have kind of, you know, weaker, you know, uh, nerdy computer types in the city and that, 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 you know, buy into a lot more of it. And we think that somehow that's unique to America and it's not. I mean, China has those same, uh, divisions and dynamics, maybe not quite to the level that we do, because we're much more of a melting pot nation probably than any other nation out there. Um, nations that would be close to that would be nations like Panama. Uh, there's not really a lot of countries that really have this, the huge ethnic diversity that the United States does because of years and years and years of immigration from different parts of the world and, and many other components. Um, so that, that has a little bit, you know, more potential for splinter groups and things, but you got one point. Seven trillion people or something like that? Man, that's a, uh, 1.7 billion. I'm sorry, did I say trillion? No, 1.7, there's too many billions of trillions in this. Uh, but 1.7 billion Chinese people, um, there's a lot of differing opinions about how things should be. And if they have economic turmoil, uh, they have a lot of potential. Now, they would be much quicker to put the boot on the neck and use military force, but 
you know, what happens if the military stationed in one province decides, well, we're we're not we're not doing that. We're 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 with our people. Um, you think that that doesn't happen in a nation like China? It 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 certainly does. There's human beings, um, and human beings behave pretty much the same way across the world. Um, you take away enough, and they behave one way, and they have enough to be self-sufficient. They behave another way, and they get too much excess, uh, and they become spoiled, and they behave yet another way. And and that's just a constant. So is China angling for this? Yes. How do I think they want to pull it off? I think what they want to do is they want to create a consortium, uh, a basket of currencies. And I think that you know India, Russia, and Brazil uh, are, are part of that basket, and I think that If they had to do it with the dollar being part of the basket initially, I think they would to get it done. Uh, but I think that overall, long term, that's the one unit they want out. Uh, they basically are making a case little at a time to many people that the United States has been untrustworthy uh, as the global standard and currency, that we've used it as a sledgehammer to enforce our will when we were never supposed to and agreed not to. And that we've been irresponsible financially, placing the entire global economy at risk. Like the Chinese or not, and I'm not real big fans of anybody's government. I'm certainly not a big fan of the Chinese government, especially their, you know, their equivalent to a federal government. And I'm certainly no fan of their, their, you know, view of communism and socialism being good for the people. I think it's a terrible system of government, but like it or like that or not, um, when they when it comes to their case that the dollar has been used as a sledgehammer by the United States to force our will in places because of the global currency standard, they are correct. And when they say that we have been irresponsible with the way that we've managed our debt and placing the entire global economy at risk because the global standard uh, currency is the most debt-leveraged currency in the world, they are not wrong about that either. They are absolutely correct on both uh, statements. And it means that eventually they probably will get what they want. And they are certainly in position to be the next global economic superpower. And our days of filling that position are numbered. But it's not now, and they're not dumping. And the, the, the reporting being done around that is simply inaccurate and disingenuous. And the people reporting it know full well what they're doing. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake. I've got a question for your expert panel member, Steve Harris. And my question is about insulating a tough shed cabin that will be used as a tiny home on some forest property that we own in the mountains. Uh, the shed isn't built yet, so we still have some time to make some changes to the plan. And I'm hoping that's uh, something you can help me with. So uh, the question is, uh, should we use some kind of reflective material like kind of like a space blanket or aluminum foil in addition to the traditional layer of pink fiberglass insulation. Um, I think I remember Steve Harris saying something about this on a previous show, uh, that the, you got to have some kind of radiant heat to reflective surface. So if we uh, added that, does it go on the inside of the fiberglass uh, towards the inner house or on the outer side uh, of the structure? Um, also, as a side note, I'd welcome any suggestions or ideas that you have on building a structure like this, uh, kind of a tiny home uh, retreat in the mountains. Uh, what would you do if you were building something like this? Yeah, we've got about 13 acres on you know, heavily wooded property on the north side of the mountains. Um, no electricity. There is a, a spring nearby. 
and uh, we just intend to use it as like a family retreat, uh, bug out location type thing. So I'd like to hear your ideas and thoughts on what you'd incorporate and uh, stuff we could uh, take into consideration. So thank you for your uh, feedback, and I uh, can't wait to hear from you. Thank you. Well, that is a tailor-made question for Mr. Insulation himself, Mr. Stephen Harris. So I sent that over to him, and he put a lot of work into this answer. Uh, Steve, what say you, man, on a tough shed and insulation and keeping warm and, and all that great stuff? Hello, John in Salt Lake City. Heat is transferred in three ways. Conduction, like your hand holding something hot. Convection, like hot air blowing on your hand. And by radiation, holding your hands up to the fire. The reflector only takes care of the radiation component of the heat transfer, and this is the lowest component when you're talking about heat at ambient temperatures. I mean, really, how much radiation do you feel coming off the wall? And what is it going to do? It's just going to reflect the heat back or the cool back into the wall where it turns into heat anyways. So the answer is no. No reflector not needed. Yeah, I know for you other people out there, there are a lot of people out there on the Internet telling you to, you got to have a reflector, but most of this is coming from people who sell reflectors. So just go with the pink insulation. I'd much rather see you go with the blue dial soft touch insulation, which is all polyester, no gloves or masks are needed, but I think, I think it got discontinued. So if you find some, snatch it up. The other option that is better than pink insulation is ground-up cellulose insulation, but that's usually blown in, and doing that at the cabin location, which sounds remote, might not be easy. So I think you might be stuck with pink. To keep heat in in the wintertime, having the cabin as airtight as possible is what would normally be the best thing to do. But if it's too tight, your stove won't draft. Literally, the wood stove won't work. I can't get air in to go across the fire to go up the chimney. And I imagine since you are heavily wooded, you'll be using wood heat. And a wood stove in such a small place will put out more than enough heat that uh, any leaks or cracks just won't be important. If you're going to go to solar heat for the house, then you would seal up every single crack that there was. But since you're not going to be there all the time, and wood is in such an abundance, I would not go with solar heat. I would just go with wood heat. Now, you do want to plug all major, major cracks with expanding polyurethane foam. That's the expanding stuff in the can. And, of course, use double-pane windows, probably windows that you can get all the way open instead of just, like, sliding one half over the other half uh, and have screens in. This way you can get max ventilation during the hot months. Uh, to start with, power the cabin from your car with an inverter or a battery bank if you have a pickup truck. Complete free instructions on how to do this, as you all know, are at battery1234.com. Some LED lights and some small fans will make a dark cabin feel really homey. And if you want to turn on a TV in the middle of nowhere uh, or strike up a DVD player, you'll be able to do it. I would put solar panels on your cabin. Oh, my God. <laughs> did I just say that? <laughs> I think I did. I would put solar panels on your cabin. 100 watts minimum, 300 watts is better really don't need to go over 300 watts because you can run 300 watts through one 30-amp charge controller. That only costs 100 bucks. Uh, two golf cart batteries from Sam's Club GC2s. Uh, use LED lights. Nice thing is you can also run an electric chainsaw off of this, and Jack and I are 
big fans of electric chainsaw. You'll need a 1600-watt Whistler inverter to do this, but it makes cutting up small things quick and easy without having to fire up the big noisy chainsaw. Let's say you got a log that you uh, you want to trim. It's your wood's on your porch, and you got a log you want to trim because it's just a little bit too big to go into the stove. You just plug in the chainsaw, squeeze the handle, go vroom, right through it, and in about five seconds or less, and you're done. You don't have to pull, pull, pull. You don't have to turn the thing off. You don't have to have a bunch of noise, and it's done real quietly, too. So uh, electric chainsaws uh, are good things. You should be able to run small fans in the summertime for cooling. That helps a lot on a, help night, uh, on a hot night. Remember, cool the person, not the building. So put the fan so it can blow on each of your faces. Each person gets their own small fan, not one big one in the middle of the cabin. I would put in an electric pump from the spring for water. You want pressurized water going to the house. It makes washing dishes or washing yourself a lot easier, even if it just drains into a bucket. Have water going to the house. This makes it a lot more civilized. You can use a 120-volt RV water pump from SureFlow, S-H-U-R-F-L-F-L, L-O for this. It's particularly called the PARK model, P-A-R-K. Yes, a 120-volt pump, not a 12-volt pump. It's a lot easier to run power all the way out to the pump at the spring with 120 volts than it is with 12 volts. Definitely, you want to have the most simple hot water system you can have, and that is in my book, Sunshine the Dollars, which is on solar1234.com. Just having warm wash water will make the quality of life a lot higher. Even if you're not taking a shower with it, Hot water is good. The solar hot water heater is made from nothing but a sliding glass door, glass, and I tell you how to get that for free. Some 2x4s, black plastic, and an old door for a base. 15 gallons of water at 180F coming right up. Now, I do have one more little special thing that I would put in there if I were you, and this is for your cooking. I have a new wood gas stove out, and it is an indoor wood gas stove. has a 3-inch chimney on it, and you can use any 3-inch furnace ducting from Home Depot to extend the chimney in any direction or any distance. It's a T-LUD, which means it's a top-lip, updraft gasifier stove. And it burns very cleanly. Clean enough that be inside the cabin. <laughs> That's the reason it has a chimney. You really have to see the video of it to understand it, but it works so well, and it's the only gasifier stove on the market with a chimney. Now, will this stove, which is, by the way, called the Hunter, heat your cabin? No, it won't heat your cabin. That's the point. You want to cook two or three times a day when you're at the cabin. You put sticks and twigs into the stove, you light it, and then you cook on it without having to heat up your entire cabin. See my point? It's hot enough in the summertime. Do you need more heat in the kitchen? No, you don't, or in the entire cabin. This will save you issues with propane, liquid fuel stoves, and you can cook inside in your mini kitchen that has water running 
that has water running water instead of sitting outside in the weather to cook. So just imagine you're inside your little kitchen, you got your uh, hunter stove, you're cooking on it with twigs and wood from the woods, and you got a little sink there, you got pressurized water, you got LED lights, you got a fan going, uh, the kids are watching a DVD on the TV, just enjoying the nice spring day with the air coming in. How much nicer does it get? Okay, this is what a little bit of electricity will do for you. It give you a much better quality of life. I have complete video and photos of this hunter stove in operation, and you can find it at my new website. Are you ready? Yeah, you guessed it. Rocket stove one two three four dot com this is stephen harris for the expert panel i hope i answered all your questions john please call in some more questions guys and i'll see you later steve's awesome isn't he hey steve thanks for that one i've got one more from steve here in a bit before i uh before i uh, get to that though i do have another question this is this is kind of a cool one more of a permaculture question i like it a lot of variety in these shows so uh let's go ahead and take the next caller and i'll come back with an answer Hi, Jack. This is Dave from uh, Central New Jersey. My question is regarding planting fruit trees in my yard for privacy. I live in a typical half-acre suburban lot, and I have, a, I have about 100 feet of chain-link fence that separates mine and my neighbor's property. I like to plant something productive that would provide food and some privacy. I was thinking about apple trees since they grow well in my area. I'm just not sure if that's the best choice for what I'm trying to accomplish. And if I go with apple trees, how close do you think I could plant them to my fence without encroaching on my neighbor's property? I'm going to send you a picture with uh, with a picture for Jack uh, Dash Dave from Central New Jersey. Uh, maybe I'll give you some clearer picture what uh, what the lot looks like. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Okay, the picture was as suburban as it gets. Chain link fence. I'm going to say it was a five foot chain link fence. Grass on both sides of it. Nothing there. Houses relatively close to each other. Most of the yards. Uh, size is from depth, not width. That means the houses seem to be, to me anyway, very, very close to each other, you know, side to side. Um, what I call spitting distance close. I go, if I could poke my head out a window on uh, one side of the house and get it done just right, I could probably spit a watermelon seed, hit the other house. Um, I don't like living that way, but we do uh, a lot of that in, uh, in suburbia. And, and so how do we handle it? Um, the idea of planning things for privacy and productivity is a good one. The idea of apple trees for that purpose, for multiple reasons, is a bad one. Uh, you say apple trees grow well in your area. The tree grows well. The production is generally poor in the northeast for apples. There's a lot of diseases and problems with apples. It's not that you can't grow them. It's that they're not the most productive thing, and they come with a whole bunch of problems, so much so that some experts recommend just not using them in the Northeast. I'm not quite that hard on it, but for something like this, I say the trouble with the production outweighs the the value of an apple, and I'd be far more likely to place that apple somewhere as a, as a part of a, of a food forest mimic more in the backyard somewhere central and use it as a canopy or a sub-canopy species with other trees. Uh, because the second problem is, this is why I wouldn't really use trees in, in the conventional sense for this. When you grow a tree, you get a trunk, and that trunk grows up, and then there's a canopy up over your head. Well, that means that when you look at a tree and you're, you know, a tree's matured out and it's producing, that you don't get a lot of screening from the ground level up to about the five or six foot level where your canopy starts to come out, even in a semi-dwarf. 
So what you end up with is these trees that crown out and go over your uh, over your neighbor's fence. And maybe he likes that and maybe he doesn't. We don't know. You might want to have a conversation with him about things like that first. But most of your growth with the tree is up in the area, up in the air and spread out. This is great for shade, but it's not great for privacy. Does that make sense? So we want to move more toward the shrub layer. We want something that's leafed out and comes to the ground and gets up into that five or six foot range and maybe pepper a couple trees here and there coming off of that uh, closer toward your side of the property. So if they do crown out, they don't fully shade out your shrubs and enough light gets through and then they provide kind of that, that top level cover. All right. So we want to base this thing on what you would call a fedge or a food hedge. And it just so happens that not long ago, episode 1069 was called Unusual and Everyday Plants for Food Hedges, Fedges. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of the stuff that's in that episode because that is all there for you. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But let me give you um, the list of things that I covered in that, and some of these will not work in your climate. The first one won't. Chilean or pineapple guava, that's you're too far north. But the rest of this list is a great fedge recipe for you. Filberts, nanking cherry, gummies, meddlers, mulberries, pomegranates, that's not going to work for you up there. Roses, sea berries, aronia, currants, elderberry, golgi berry, and gooseberry. I am, and I am very jealous of you guys in the Northeast that can grow things, uh, in a large quantity like gooseberries and elderberries and aronia and currant and, and gumi and nanking cherry. I'm going to try to grow some of those things down here, but they're all marginal in this heat. They will all do phenomenal for you there. And if you build your, your, your hedgerow based on these plants, and understand some of their functions like gooseberries and currants will fruit in shade. So if you do pl pl you know, plant an apple or a chestnut or something like that on a dwarfing rootstock so it doesn't become too much of a headache for your neighbors, and you do back that off in the fence, the area that you plant that tree that's going to be the most shaded uh, would be where your plants like your gooseberries and your currants should go because they will handle that shade just fine. Nanking cherry is an incredibly great plant for what you want to do. It's a beautiful plant. It gets profusely covered with gorgeous uh, white flowers. It has huge high yield of small ch cherries that are actually a plum, uh, but they're like a small cherry, and they taste phenomenal. I ate a ton of them when I was in Montana when I found one, uh, one of these things growing. I even brought some pits home to try cultivating some of my own. Um, it will get up into the six foot range for you and it will stay leafed out to the ground if you, if you choose to, to maintain it that way. Gooseberries will grow into great big hedges. You can shape them long and narrow or wide and round or whatever. You can really kind of control them well. Currants are going to grow a shorter height, but that's okay because basically you can make a clumpy layering system with gooseberry behind currant. Josta berries are a, a, a hybrid of gooseberry and currant cross. Those would be good to consider as well. Some other things that you could consider in this would be high bush blueberry, blackberries, raspberries, and maybe some semi-dwarf fruit trees peppered into this. Uh, Chinese chestnuts, they get kind of big, but they can be pruned down quite a bit, and maybe you put that more toward the center or back of your lot, depending on how it fits with others there. And you need at least two chestnuts for some cross-pollination, so you got to think about that as well. 
I'd recommend that approach far more than a row of apple trees. It's much more utilitarian. It's going to provide you a yield over longer periods of time. And it's going to perform the function that you're most interested in, privacy, much better than trees that have their canopy up over the fence so that when you stand there, you're looking still straight at your neighbor. Um, I would make sure, my biggest thing with this, is that you, you plan for the way and the shape and the form of these plants, take them back from the fence far enough that you can get back behind between the fence and the, the shrubs. So that you can pick from both sides and so that you can perform maintenance on both sides. I think that's going to be really important and it'll be really kind of a cool little pathway if you have dogs or something like that for them to kind of cruise around through and all like that. And if you got kids, they may enjoy that. And uh, as you get away from the house, you, know, you get that pinched off position between the fence and the house where you're up by the front of the lot, you may want to swing it out even further And maybe make, maybe take one of your hedgerows down a few feet beyond and then come back inside and pick one up. Kind of create a little bit of a maze effect in there. Uh, nice little sitting place, something like that. Because you could then, if you, if the solar aspect's right, plant some creeping vines that'll climb up on that fence, provide additional um, uh, amounts of uh, privacy, let still some life, I'm talking like honeysuckle or, or climbing bean or something like that, uh, morning glories for, you know, something like to, the, to that effect, and create these little cozy kind of sitting spots in there as well. And then by taking this kind of fruit salad approach, and if you do, let's say, plant blueberries or blackberries, Plant several different varieties that, that, that come into fruit at different times. And repeat that. If you do a couple dwarf apple trees, uh, semi-dwarf apple trees mixed in with this, nothing wrong with that. You know, Plant late, early, and mid-season varieties, but try to make sure that you have enough overlap with your blossom time that they will cross-pollinate with each other. And you can get a lot of production out of a small space that way and get the privacy you're looking for and extend the harvest from early spring all the way into the latest parts of fall by taking that more uh, more diversified approach. Great question. Uh, again, the episode you want to listen to to get real deep understanding of this uh, is 1069, Unusual and Everyday Plants for Food Hedges, and I will put a link in today's show notes on it as well for you. Hey, Jack, this is Dan from Victoria, and my question is what should I be adding to sandy soil to improve it for a, for a veggie garden for the first time? Um, and more importantly, how much of it should I be adding to the soil? Uh, the background is that uh, my wife and I just bought a property in uh, a, an area pretty close to the coast, so we have very sandy soil, um, and I need to set it up. I'm, I'm trying to create raised garden beds similar to on your, what you've created on your contour videos, and everywhere I look on the internet, The websites are telling me that I need to add organic matter or I need to add manure to my soil to improve it. But nobody says how much I should be adding. So I'd like to know, what do you think I should be adding? Should I, should I just be adding compost, um, mushroom compost or manure? Um, and should I be adding anything like uh, uh, clay to my soil? And in what quantities? Am I talking about a bag of manure to a cubic meter or am I talking about you know, half a cubic meter to my cubic meter? I'm going to be creating uh, one meter by 10 meter beds. I'm going to create four of them. Uh, I'm going to do two of them as woody beds and two of them not as woody beds, sort of as an experiment, I guess. And just want to see, um, you know, I just want to get off to a good start by adding the right amount of uh, compost and organic matter. 
Um, really love your show. Thanks heaps, and uh, hope I get on the air. Cheers. The reason you don't usually see people doing it with a straight-up recipe, uh, like X for Y, is because the answer is really it depends, and it depends on a lot of things. How bad is the existing soil? What does sandy really mean? Is it sand like play, like play sand in a sandbox, like beach sand? Or is it a sandy loam with it heavy on the sand side? And, 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 you know, that's, that's a night and day difference. And if you're trying to grow in, you know, a play, play box of sand, um, the answer is a whole lot. In fact, so much that you're almost building your own soil and putting it in your raised bed and you're, you're, you're creating something like a Mel's mix out of square foot gardening. Uh, which would be a mix, and this is what Mel says to do, it's not necessarily what I agree with, but one-third vermiculite, uh, one-third compost, and one-third peat moss. And that, that, that'll work, and, and that's really not incorporating it into that sand. That's putting it into the raised bed, and you're growing in that. Uh, and six inches of depth in that will grow just about anything for you other than long carrots and long, uh, long, uh, you know, uh, like Korean radishes and stuff like that that are going to need to go deeper. And as long as there's nothing blocking them in the bottom, they'll go right into that sand just fine. Um, so the answer is it depends. And if you're doing raised beds, um, you're going to have to bring in material anyway, right? And now if you're doing woody beds, Uh, that's going to bring your level up, so not not quite as much. So th this is one of those things where it really depends on how sandy sandy is. Um, basically, the way that I tend to do things is I like to bring in about four inches of compost. And so that's not really about X for Y. That's I like to put about four inches of compost on top of anything. And I generally will put about three inches and turn it in. Or if I'm building a bed, I'll do it in layers. So I'll put down some regular soil and I'll put down an inch of compost and some more soil and an inch of compost and more soil and an inch of compost. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, you know, top dress it with an inch. So four total inches to that bed. And, and the reason I'll go ahead and layer it is if I layer it, it will take care of itself. It, uh, the little creatures that come in there will start to, I don't have to sit there and turn it and turn it and turn it. If I have a situation where I'm not really building the bed, it's already there, uh, then I probably will put at least half of the compost down and turn it in one time and then top dress it and let nature take over and mulch above that. So that's more of my approach. If you have truly, truly sandy soil, the big problem you have in so much fertility, because we can address that with organic matter, compost, and manure, and things like that, it's, it's the ability for it to hold moisture. It just, it's too well drained. If it's really, really bad, you can add like some bentonite clay. You don't want to do too much of that, so how much? That's something that I would talk to from a garden store in your area that sells the product. Uh, to give you a better idea of how much to use. But in general, you know, it's something that I would do with a scoop and I would spread out a, a thin coating of it across the entire growing surface. I'm talking a eighth to a quarter an inch at most. And I would turn that in and I would incorporate that in and that'll start to give some body, some bulk to the soil. Uh, there's a video out there called Backyard Permaculture from a guy in Australia. The use is bentonite in this model. I'll put a link in today's show notes for that uh, for you as well. Uh, it's called backyard permaculture, and uh, if you uh, if you go get if you if you go watch that video, you'll get a really good 
um, idea of using a Bentonite's type soil amendment, but I don't know that you need to. Let's talk about what's really good about sand right now. Uh, sand, uh, sandy soil is very tillable. It's very easy to dig in. It's very easy to manipulate. So it's easy to work with. Because it, it, it doesn't compact heavily, it's very easy to weed and remove plants from that you don't want. Because it's soft, it's very easy for your plants to put down deep, deep roots. I mean, it can really get way down there. Little hair roots that can find their way a meter or two meters deep in your soil, uh, in sandy soil that could never do it in a lot of hard-packed clay soils and things like that. So it's, it's in itself, that's, that's a very big asset to sandy soils. The next thing that makes sandy soils so great is once you do get organic matter in with them, you do get biological and fungal activity in with them, you start to swing a little bit toward the acid side of things with your bacterial activity, with your compost, that sand is actually little tiny pieces of rock. And that makes it a lot easier for it to be broken down by soil organism activity than actual rock. And what's inside that sand little piece of rock Minerals. It's high in minerals. Just, it's oozing minerals. There's people that are going out and getting a couple buckets of ocean sand and dumping it in their garden just for the minerals. So you've got great mineral activity there. And if you start bringing in some dynamic accumulators like comfrey into that situation where comfrey in a sandy soil will put a freaking three foot of root down eventually. Um, it will just mine the hell out of those nutrients and make it available to your plant. So I think that is going to do a lot for you. Your woody beds are a great idea because you're going to you're going to immediately dump carbon into soil that's probably quite deficient in carbon. Uh, you're going to put a lot of structure and organic matter in there and I know you said you're going to do four and two with and two without kind of as an experiment um, with sandy soil in a wet climate where overdraining is the problem. I would tell you honestly this. You do what you want, but in my opinion, the experimenting has been done for you. Other people have done it. It's been proven to work. It's been proven to be beneficial. I would do all four as woody beds. And I think you'll get a much stronger result that way. If you want to convince yourself, um, that's fine. But in two years or three years from now, you'll probably be digging up those beds, uh, digging them out. Uh, getting some depth down and adding wood to them and going, I didn't, why didn't I do this before? If you're going to grow annuals primarily, it's not a big deal. And if you got sandy soil, it'll be easy to dig and it's not really going to cost you anything other than, you know, maybe taking a winter when it starts to thaw and, and doing it, you know, before planting anyway. And, you know, it's, it's not really going to be a catastrophe. Um, if you're going to plant a lot of perennials, well, plant them in your woody beds because if you don't, you'll be digging them up from your other beds. As to how much, again, I let your. Here's what I want everybody. This is not just for the caller here. I want everybody to do. Let yourself have permission to use your gut and your instincts. Put it in there. Mix it up. Hold in your hands and look at it and say to yourself, Does this look like something plants would grow in? When you look at it and go, That looks right. It probably is. We have an intrinsic intelligence about these things. I can show you two handfuls of dirt and say, which one would you rather grow in? And 99.9% .9 of people will get the answer right. And then if you do a soil test, unless there's some, you know, you know, somebody laced it with some sort of a chemical or something that changes that. But when it comes down to the basic ingredients that are in the soil, you're going to be right 99.9% .9 of the time. Trust that. 
trust nature. How much? As much as you can afford without being ridiculous. You know, don't don't build a, a raised bed three feet high of 100% compost. Not because it, it, actually it'll work. Just don't do it because it's a waste of a resource. You know, spread that stuff out a bit. Um, but again, I like to use about four inches of compost across the, the, the area in an establishment. And then I like to bring in anywhere between a half inch to an inch and a half every year across that area. And you, you almost can't mess that up. You, you really can't. So don't. Don't second-guess yourself too much and give yourself some credit and give yourself some trust and trust nature as well and rock on. Let's take another question. Hello, Jack. Uh, First-time caller, I have a question for Steve Harris. My question is, what sort of heating oil tank should I get for my home? I have a 275-gallon tank that needs to go. And according to one website, heating oil now has additives in it that corrode ordinary carbon steel. So according to the website, I need to buy an expensive exotic tank rather than a plain old carbon steel tank. I want to know if that's just marketing hype, type, marketing hype and maybe what if Steve Harris has any uh, suggestions for what sort of tanks to use, or, or of course, if you have any ideas too as well. Anyway, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jack. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the TSP Expert Panel. Thank you very much for calling in your question. I got a nice quick answer here for you. After calling around to about four or five different tank companies and doing extensive research on the Internet just to double, triple, and quadruple check what I already knew, there are no additives in heating oil that cause corrosion. None. Zero. Zip. So whoever is lying to you, do not buy from them. If they're crooked in one way, they'll be crooked in another way. Now, here's the real question is, what causes tank corrosion? It's water getting into the tank from condensation, for when you open it up and fill it up, and moisture gets in there, or when uh, the tank breathes, and or as easy as it's raining when the tank is being filled, a little bit of water gets in there, and it stays in there. Water is heavier than oil, so the water sinks to the bottom of the tank and collects there. This is in direct contact with the inside of the steel tank, and it slowly starts to rust. This makes kind of a sludge of water, oil, and rust in the bottom of the tank, and the company that replaces it is legally obligated by the EPA to safely dispose of a sludge as well as the old oil tank. There are lots of regulations behind oil tanks. Now, <clears throat> there are additives for you to add to your fuel tank. This is the reverse of what you were asking. You want to add additives. You want to add corrosion inhibitors. And you want to add these to your tank every year or more often. Uh, at my work at Chrysler, one of the things I did a lot of work regarding was the chemistry and electrochemistry of engine coolants. And engines are made of iron, they're made of aluminum, we have lots of concerns. And I can tell you that the engine coolants have a significant amount of corrosion inhibitors in them, and they work. Now, just for the record, you have to add fuel oil corrosion inhibitors to your fuel oil tank. You can't add engine cooling system additives from AutoZone to your fuel oil tank. One is oil-based, one is water-based. I was just giving the automotive coolant as an example to let you know corrosion inhibitors really do work. Go to Google and Google 
home heating oil additives, and you'll find a whole wealth of chemicals to add to your home heating oil that will help you out. These should be in there um, on a regular basis. Now, real quickly, what type of tanks are out there? There's a single-wall steel heating oil tank like you mentioned. There is an epoxy-coated single-wall steel heating oil tank. Now, the funny thing is the epoxy's not on the inside. The epoxy's on the outside to prevent corrosion from the outside in. And most corrosion on oil tanks is from the inside out. <laughs> Go figure. There's double-wall steel tanks, so if the inside... One rust, it goes into the outside one, and a little alarm goes off. Now, there is a double-wall steel tank that has a polyethylene heating oil liner on the inside. It's like a tank within a tank. It's still called a double-wall tank. I'll come back to this in a minute. Then there's a fiberglass heating oil tank. Fiberglass would be the most expensive one that there is, and it would probably outlive you and me together. Just look at fiberglass boats. They they last forever. <laughs> you can cut them and replace the engines in the interior, and the bolt hole, the boat hull is still fine. The cost today to replace a leaking above ground heating oil tank is about two thousand bucks. And I called around and found this to be true. Regulations require documented disposal of the sludge and hazardous materials, and certification of proper disposal of the tank itself. Sometimes these costs. Well, these costs are included in the estimates that you'll be getting, okay? Sometimes what's not included in the estimate is all states require permits for oil tanks. <laughs> Gee, permit fees are a source of local government revenue, <laughs> go figure, and often are pretty significant. Uh, sometimes permit fees are not included in estimates, so whoever you're talking to, make sure that the price they're giving you includes the disposal of the sludge, disposal of the tank, and the cost of any local and or state permit fees. Make sure there's no hidden costs. Now, here's the thing. If you get a fuel spill and you spill the entire tank, cleanup costs can be twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, especially if it goes into your neighbor's property or it goes into a waterway or a lake. In fact, uh, calling around, the first question you get asked is, are you near water? Because some towns have regulations that you have to have a double wall tank if you're near water. Now, here's the thing. It costs about 2000 bucks to replace a steel tank, and that's a single-wall steel tank. It's only $800 more, $2,800, to have a double-wall tank. The double-wall type is the one with a polyethylene liner on the inside. This is for a 275-gallon tank. So since the risks are so high, and you're probably going to be in the house for a significant period of time, if you're spending $2,000, it would make sense for you to spend another $800 and get the superior tank, the tank that will have no spill issues for you, no insurance issues for you, uh, that you won't have to worry about, that will last you probably 20, 30 years or more, and versus having to replace the tank possibly after 10 years with a traditional steel tank. Uh, again, this depends upon your locality and your situation. So there you have it. There's my recommendation. Thank you very much for calling in the panel question for Steve Harris. Please call in more. I enjoy these. And as usual, you can get everything Jack and I have done at solar1234.com. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jack. This is Low Watt Living. I was thinking about eventually making a orchard or an orchard uh, for people to come and pick fruit, and I was worried about 
governmental rules on, you know, selling fruit. If they could come in and, uh, you know, make me do certain things, like not spray with this or spray with this. Obviously, I wouldn't spray, but you, you, you get what I'm saying. Now, I was wondering if I could say, instead of saying $10, $10 charge, pick all you want, if I could say $10 for parking, picking fruits free. If I could get around, because I'm not technically selling fruit, I'm actually selling or running a parking spot. Love to get your take on that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you could be worrying about nothing or you could be worrying about something. Let's, let's break this into two sides of things. There's the part of it that you need to take care of for your own personal edification, no matter what the government says. And then there's the part you have to do because the government says so. The reality is there's probably no problem whatsoever from running a pick-your-own operation and having people come in and buy the food. It's done all over the place. There's nothing that prevents you from doing this. Contrary to, to how it feels sometimes, the government right now isn't really trying to prevent people from growing their own food. There's no regulations that say you can't have a freaking garden, and there's no daggone regulations that really say especially small farms can't do stuff like this, or small orchards can't. This is done extensively. Where would the problem with government lie in this thing? It would be with zoning and where you're at. That's that's what you're going to have to look at. And you won't have to be zoned agricultural to do this, though there's significant tax advantages if you can acquire an agricultural uh, uh, status and uh, become tax-exempt for many things and tax-reduced for many other things. But you won't have to be to do that. That's That's not an issue. So... It's going to be whether or not anything in your local area prevents you from running a pick-your-own operation. That is the only thing. Now, if there was, like, we do not allow that, could I then say, you can tour my farm for 10 bucks, and if you happen to pick some stuff while you're here, it's up to you if you want to take it with you or not. Maybe. It all depends on how tough-ass the code enforcement people are going to be. And honest to God, it really revolves around, well, you have a bunch of neighbors bitching about it. That's what causes a lot of problems. There's something going on in Arlington, Texas right now, a million of you guys have emailed me about, and I'm going to tell you the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but the Arlington Police Department is very wrong. That's all I'm going to say about it today. But it ain't about people trying to prevent anybody from growing food. It's about bitching neighbors on that story, folks, and that's... That's your concern with code enforcement most of the time is, will the neighbors complain? And a big way to head that off is to talk to the neighbors before you do anything, and depending on how big this operation is. You also have to look at, well, is there any real money in this? If you can make five, ten thousand dollars a year and not really work any harder, it's probably worth doing. If it's going to make you five hundred bucks a year, it's probably not worth your time. So it's how big is the area, how much are you going to be able to grow, and what kind of a return of investment you have to make that decision. That, that really doesn't have anything to do with the government, other than if there's going to be any government problems or requirements, um, is, the, is, the, is the gain worth compliance? Is it worth whatever I have to do to make them leave me alone? Um, honest to God, pick your own is probably one of the smartest things a person can do agriculturally. Um, it, it has some limitations, though. You talk about an orchard, it's really kind of what you got to do. Doing a food forest doesn't work as well. Not everything in a food forest is edible. Somebody might eat something they ain't supposed to, and then you got a problem. It's much easier to say, the apricots are over there, this is what an apricot looks like, and that's what's available for picking today. And I would actually not do pick as much as you want, um, because I might come down there if you had apples, for instance, with a 
uh, you know, a, a couple big tubs and leave with enough to make some cider for ten bucks and be real happy about it. And you might not, and your other customers might not. I would do it on a poundage basis. I would do come and pick your own, and on your way out, we weigh it and tell you how much you owe. Or I'd say this is a bucket we provide for you to pick in, and it's X per bucket for strawberries and X per and Y per bucket for apples. They may be different because they have different fruits, different values, different sizes, different numbers fit in the same area. I would do it something. I would not shy away from doing this as a selling food, and I wouldn't try to hide it as something else either. Not if it's going to be an ongoing business because there's something called the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And if a bureaucrat wants to be a dick in something like this, they probably can. So you're better off finding out if there's any zoning issues. That's going to be your number one issue. If there's any zoning issues on your property that prevent you from doing this, if the answer is no, then nothing else is probably a problem. The other thing that you're going to need to do, though, you're going to need to cover your ass two ways, one with the insurance and two with a waiver. Um, you want to have at least, if nothing else, an umbrella policy that basically covers all liability of the landowner if anybody's injured on your property or anything that would ever happen. And you want to talk to a good insurance agent about that and any other specific insurance that you'll need for this type of thing. And then you got to weigh the cost of the insurance against the profit of the operation. And is it worth doing? Don't go without the insurance. On top of that, you need a one-page, easy-to-understand, fourth-grader would understand it waiver that basically says it ain't your fault if anything happens to them anyway. Uh, in legalese drafted by an attorney that knows what the hell he's doing. The, the, the reason you need the insurance is I don't care what kind of waiver you have. If a person's on your property and can prove that you allowed them on your property and at the same time committed what's known as gross negligence, okay? Gross negligence will negate your waiver. So if I had you sign a waiver that says, You know, if anything happens to you while you're on my property, then, you know, it's, it's not my responsibility. You come on my property and trip on a rock and scrape your arm, I'm probably covered by that waiver. Or your kids run and trip on a rock. I mean, there's rocks here. It's, it's pretty apparent. I might, if that, yeah, I might need to spell some things out, like some examples of things that could happen, like cutting yourself on a fence is not, you know, just stuff like that. I might have a lawyer add some things in like that. Examples would include but not exclude such, you know, dangers such as that would be inherent in any location. You, you know, assume liability yourself. That, that, that would be fine. I'd probably be covered. I mean, they could sue, but I'll probably win. And a smart lawyer is probably not going to take the case. You're like, dude, you signed a waiver. Your kid tripped and skinned his knee. He's fine. The guy gave you a bucket of apples. What do you want? I mean, there's nothing here. But, To go to the extreme to explain gross negligence. Let's say that after I had this whole thing set up, I went out in the woods in the springtime when timber rattlers are um, breeding and found in, in, in abundance in single locations. And I filled up about 30 or 40 boxes of timber rattlesnakes, and I let them go all over my property. And, and then you got bit by a timber rattlesnake, and you could prove that I'd done this and not told you. Um, that would be gross negligence. That would be gross negligence. If I had a well on my property uh, that needed to be covered and, and closed up at all times and I left it open uh, while during business hours and unsupervised, your kid fell down it like Timmy down the well, that would be a very probable case of what would be considered gross negligence. And no matter what your intents are, there are times when things go wrong. So you need insurance to cover you in that event. The insurance carrier may... Um, 
reduce the cost of coverage based on the agreement that you have with the waiver and the enforceability of the waiver. This is something you kind of get into some areas where you need to talk to an attorney that deals with things like this about setting up the proper legal structure for protection. That may sound like it's too much trouble for what it's worth, but... If you can do something that makes you 10 or 20 grand a year and it takes you a couple thousand dollars to set it up right and a few hundred dollars a year ongoing to protect yourself, to be in compliance and be protected, it's probably worth doing. If it's just going to make you a couple hundred bucks and you end up spending that much in, in grief and misery and capital uh, to, to be in operation safely, it's probably not worth doing. So you've got to look at the totality of the situation. This is what I would tell you. Plant the orchard anyway. And you can figure out how to monetize it down the road based on its size and what you're growing and how successful it is. Uh, but these are the things I would be thinking about with any pick-your-own operation. Well, let's take another call. Yeah, Jack, this is John from uh, northern New York on the Canadian border. I'm calling to ask your thoughts on, uh, I have a piece of property I put up for Craigslist on sale, and I have had a couple of people contact me as far as owner financing. I would like to know your thoughts. If you own a piece of property, would you get involved in it? Is it a good thing? Um, because I've never really, you know, looked at that avenue of, uh, of of trying to sell it. So I'm just asking for your uh, your opinion. Thank you very much, and I enjoy your shows. Bye. Uh, you can expect to probably have a lot more questions like that if you're trying to sell raw land today, as uh, lending has tightened up. Uh, with all of the crap that came from the mortgage meltdown, etc., what's tightened up even more and was already far more complicated than buying a house is buying raw land. Uh, raw land, I think banks should be getting in line to finance raw land. I think that it's it, in most instances, the only thing you can do to land is make it worth more money by anything you do with it after you buy it, other than if you dump chemicals on it or something like that. You put a structure on it, it's worth more money. You put a pond in it, it's worth more money. You you plant trees on it, it's worth more money. You put a farm there, it's worth more money. You start grazing cattle on it, it's worth more. I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of ludicrous, but it's the reality. Um, so expect it if you're selling land. Now, to owner finance land and do so without leveraging yourself backwards and, and doing some things that may even be illegal, you have to first own the land. And what I mean by own the land is you can't have debt on the land because you have a lien on a lien then, and, it, and your, your lien holder is probably not hip to that. If you have a lien on your land, you could do a lease-to-purchase option but not a true owner financing uh, and stay clean in most instances unless there is a specific uh, provision in there that prevents you from leasing the land, and that's almost never the case. Uh, most uh, land uh, lien holders against the land that you owe money to would prefer that you are able to lease it and make money and pay them than not. So, um, you know, in, in spite of uh, what we might have learned from Disney cartoons and Scrooge McDuck, most bankers don't want to foreclose on your your, fi your family farm or your land or your house. They prefer that you continue to pay your bill. Why? Because issuing a mortgage is in some ways like creating money out of thin air. For the banks, it really is for you. It sort of is. Does that mean that I would recommend you do it? Maybe. And if the numbers work out, definitely. Let's look at it this way. 
land you don't do a thir- and you, I would never do owner financing for a 30 year period. There's a lot of ways you can structure these. This is something to involve a lawyer with and get a contract drawn up that's enforceable uh, w- with the laws in your state because the different states have different laws and how hard it is to repossess a piece of property. Basically, you're becoming the bank. And just like a bank has to go through a foreclosure procedure, you have to go through a foreclosure procedure if the person fails to pay and you want the property back to recoup your investment. The good news is if you've done that and you do recoup the property, the guy's paid you whatever he's paid you, you keep everything. And, 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 you know, that's, and, and that's good. And it's bad for the guy that, that, that didn't pay you. But again, he didn't pay you. And now you've, you've got to go through all this crap to get the property back. It's also the case that it's far more likely that you and he will be able to work something out if there does come a time of a shortfall because you're reasonable people. If you do that, though, you have to be prepared that if you give them an extension or anything like that, like I'm going to take your payment for this month and move it to the last month, and I'm going to do this one time only or what have you, um, that there's a, a paper amendment to that so that it's agreed upon and written down as a contract, just like a bank or a financing company would do with you. And, and it's good that you could work with people that way, and you don't want to be Scrooge McDuck, right? So all of that said, what's the good and the bad? The good is that you will probably get better um, return on your capital than you could in any other way right now. Let's say you had a piece of property you're going to sell for $50,000, and uh, you were said, well, I'll do owner financing, but I need a $10,000 down payment. You get $10,000. That's yours. You're toting the note, so to speak, for forty grand. Let's say you divide that up over a five-year payment plan on a 6.5% interest rate or a 7.5% interest rate. And you can set the interest rate anywhere you want to as long as it's not considered usurious. And uh, definitely I would be setting it about two to three points above what you would be paying a bank. Because if you can get a bank loan, go get one and give me my fifty grand. Okay, so now you're sitting on an interest payment of around six or seven percent or more on forty thousand dollars over five years. There isn't a place in the world that you can do that, and your investment is one hundred percent backed by the real property. That's the good of it. If you if it does wash out, you can foreclose, you can reclaim the property under your agreement as the lien holder on the property, and you can sell it to somebody else. Now. That's fine if you only need $10,000 right now and you want cash flow for the next five years. Also, you need to have a buyout provision because if the person pays on it for a year and decides they want to buy it out, it will have amortized just like anything else. You're going to have the first year, most of the payment's interest, and it slowly swings toward the end of the loan. So is there a penalty for early payoff? If so, how much? That all has to be in your agreement. Um, but once once that's paid off, then the person has free title to the land, you release the lien, and you go on about your merry way. So as long as you don't need the cash right now, it is a great way to put your money to work for you and have it backed by a piece of real property that you already own. So in the scenario I outlined, this is what's happened. You have $10,000 you didn't have. You have cash flow for the next 60 months. You have a better return of investment than you could get on the $40,000, but you only have $10,000 to do that which you choose to do right now. The downside, you don't get the other $40,000, so if you need it, that's that's a problem. Um, the downside really is when the person you've sold to defaults, you do have to go through court procedure, and you need to talk to an attorney in your state as to how difficult that would be, A, 
if the if the the, the par party that bought the thing just says I can't pay, I'm not going to fight it, take it. And how hard it would be if they said I'm still trying to pay and, I'm, and they're fighting a foreclosure. Okay? Um and what that means you have to do is you cannot depend on that cash flow. So let's say the guy's paying you $399 a month or $499 a month. You have to see that as like that's like butter money. That's butter on top of the toast. It's not your toast. And if that money ever goes away and it puts you in a hard way financially, you've got a you can't can't get yourself in that situation and you understand this is a 10 or uh, 5 or 10 year period you're looking at anyway. Um, there are other ways to structure this. You could do this with a five-year uh, payment plan with a balloon payment at the end. So let's say it's designed so that they're going to owe you forty grand. They're going to pay twenty thousand dollars over the next sixty months, and then at the end of it, they're going to owe you another twenty thousand dollars. There's all different ways to do that. I don't really like those type of things. I think it just sets up a scenario where the person's convinced, yeah, by then I'll have the money, and they may not. And you don't want to foreclose. You don't want them to fail to pay you. You are not Scrooge McDuck. You want the whole thing to go exactly as agreed upon. That's the best outlet for you. Because you don't want to go through a court battle or something like that. And you might have to. So that's the downside. Would I do it? If I owned a great big piece of property and somebody was going to pay me a significant down payment and a great interest rate on it with a legally binding contract that both of us would sign and understand and I don't need the money right now this minute, I absolutely would because it will pay me a better return than anything else I can do and be a safer return than just about anything else I can do. Understand that any liability about the property, once the sale is transferred, it's like any other thing you would sell. It's not your problem. Okay? There's a flood and it destroyed something. It's not it's not your property, it's not your problem. Okay? Um somebody came in and 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 you know, built a house and then the house fell down. Not your problem. Guys, toilet, it, just say you did it with a structure on it, and there's a house there, and there's a toilet, the toilet gets plugged up. You're not a landlord. It's not your problem. It's not your house. You don't own it. Okay? The only time those things become a problem is when you have to reclaim the asset and it's been damaged, and there's not much you can do about that. There really isn't it. You're, again, you're being the bank here. If you like the idea of being the bank and having a cash flow and having it insured with real property, great. If you don't like it or you need the money now, it's not for you. Ins and outs of, uh, of owner financing. And again, if you're selling property now that you own, um, it's, uh, it's going to come up because it's very hard to get a property only loan right now, especially outside of the ag world. If you're a farmer with a proven track record and, uh, and, uh, you know, history and things like that, you might be able to get an ag loan for some property without a lot of hassle. But if you're just a person that wants a piece of land for a bug out location, It's getting hard, and that's why owner financing is becoming more and more popular. And it's a good deal on both sides because there's no credit check generally. Uh, you can run one if you want to, and you may want to. It's not much. You could even require that the person basically pay for it. It's like 20 bucks or something like that um, to make sure you don't have somebody that's really a bad risk. But generally speaking, a lot of the you know all the underwriting requirements and 400 miles of paperwork and document this and document that and write a letter for this and write a, and it's all out the window. It's a deal between two people. I actually really like it for that. I think it puts the lender and the and the borrower back into a handshake. You want the paperwork to go with it, but it really is a handshake deal. And uh, I'd like to see more business done that way in America. The problem is the person selling has to have full title for this to work. Let's take another one.
Hi, Jack. I called earlier and left a message, but I wasn't real comfortable that I got all the specifics out. I wanted to try again. It's uh, Outdoor Jacks on the Zello channel, and my question is, do I keep my restricted weapons current and purchase a sidearm in Canada, or is a shotgun going to be good enough? Now, the details are, I have my restricted permit, but we can't carry here in Canada at all. In order to keep that restricted permit and own handguns, we have two options. One is to belong to a gun club, and the other is to have a collector's status, but you can only purchase firearms that are in some way associated with each other in a specific way. For example, all need to be World War I related or II related or in one category or some other characteristics that, that assign to a certain class or a style of firearm that would be collectible. Now, in a breakdown, is it worth having a handgun in my possession, or will the shotgun be good enough for, say, home defense or other situations where security may come into play? There's a lot of red tape here in Canada. I'm sure some people know what I'm dealing with. Just want to know which way to go. Need your opinion. Thanks. Bye. I'm sorry if this makes the guy that asked the question feel used a little bit, but uh, the biggest reason I played that for Americans is so that you can see what happens if you let these ass clowns that tell you they just want common sense gun gun regulations have their way. This is what happens. This is this is what occurs. Now, answering the question, uh, assuming immigration to the United States of America and somewhere like the great state of Texas are not in your future and you're going to stay there, this is a personal decision that you have to make for yourself. The military collector angle sounds dumb to me. It sounds like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard because why the hell couldn't I be a military collector or a, a historical collector and collect guns that are both 100 years old and, and 20 years old? Um, and I don't like it. It seems way too many gotcha are there so the gun club angle is the way I would go if I was going to do this and I would make that do you want to own a handgun and if this is what you have to do and you want it bad enough to do what they're asking you to do then you do it and if you don't then you don't good enough um, since you can't carry in Canada since it's only for home defense um, a shotgun generally will be more than adequate and, and probably, in most instances, not all, but most instances, a better tool for home defense than a handgun for, for home defense. Um, when you shoot somebody with a shotgun or a rifle, they generally fall over and either die or are incapacitated. And many times people shot with a handgun say, ow, and run away or say, ow, and shoot back. Uh, and in many instances, those people eventually do uh, succumb to their injuries and die, but it's it's just a known fact, and it's proven in a lot of anecdotal evidence and, 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 and accurate studies that when it comes to stopping a fight cold, that in general, um, shotguns and rifles are a better tool for the job. So um, I don't have an easy answer for you here. Um Now, that said, are there situations with like a home invasion type scenario where a handgun might be better, tight hallways and things like that? Yeah. Um, I don't know how carbines fit into this. I don't know what the length restrictions on barrels are. I wouldn't want a shotgun with a freaking goose barrel on it that's, you know, 28 inch, you know, barrel, uh, trying to go through a hallway. So if you can, in Canada own for home defense a shotgun with say an 18 inch barrel on it I think it's a, an outstanding home defense weapon I think it's a much better weapon than a handgun I just don't want the damn restriction right in the first place but you don't seem to have much of hope of getting rid of that in in uh in maple syrup land uh so you're stuck with it so it's a personal decision dude um from a standpoint of of it, it's 100% personal 
Because the, the, the fact is that as long as you can have that short-barreled shotgun, and I don't mean SBR level, like permit level, you know, 12-inch barrel, but something like a 20-inch or 18-inch, you know, uh, tactical sh uh, length shotgun um, in your home, it's, it's probably not only more th than adequate, it may be a better tool overall than most handguns anyway. But on principle, if you want a handgun and you'd like to shoot a handgun, then I'd say go ahead with it and, and get the permit and be part of a gun club or do whatever you have to do to own one. Um, just handguns are really what we carry when a rifle or a shotgun is impractical or illegal. And having a society where you can be told that you are not trusted to have a handgun on your body while you're doing your daily grind, so to speak, um, I, I, I don't understand how the world's come this, this, this far in opposition to liberty uh, and that people have allowed it. Uh, let me add one place where I think it might make really make a lot of sense for you to have a handgun. I just don't know if this is true in Canada. In the United States, in most states anyway, uh, where handguns are legal, even if there is a carry permit or there's not one or you can't carry or it's hard to get a permit or whatever, um, most places, don't do this without checking your local laws, most places, open carry on your property is completely legal. Uh, in other words, I have a little three-acre property here right now. And uh, Texas is a concealed carry only state. So to carry concealed, you have to have a permit, and that's in all public places except where otherwise posted by you know legal means to restrict. Um, you can carry, but it has to be concealed. There's no open carry of handguns in the state of Texas. There are for it is an open carry state for long guns, not handguns. But if I were to uh, strap on my 1911 and and start tooling around in my backyard and, you know, managing my garden and, and tending to my animals and all, and I had my .45 on my hip and thinking I'm on my property, and if I need this, I want it as accessible as possible, so I'm not going to conceal. And if one of the neighbors saw that and said, oh, he's got a gun and he's, he, he's digging a hole in his garden with it, the, the, the response from law enforcement, if they were following the law, would be, is he pointing it at you? No. Is he shooting it at you? No. Is he shooting it at anything? At that point, it may or may not be okay. It depends on what and how and where. No. He, what's he doing? He's, he's, he's picking corn and he has it on his hip. Um, especially the sheriff's department, which is who has, uh, you know, just, uh, what do you call it, uh, jurisdiction in my area would say, sir, don't bother us. Don't bother us. It's his property. He's carrying on his property. Now, the reason I bring that up, can you carry on your property in Canada if you have a permit for a handgun? Can you have that handgun on your person, open, concealed, or otherwise? And if so, do you own a large piece of property? Because that would be the one place that if that loophole exists, I hate to call it a loophole, but in your country that's what it would be, that it might make sense. There's a lot of things you might be doing on a property in a rural environment where you need both of your hands free and a, and a, a rifle or a carbine or a shotgun is just not practical to have on your person and a handgun is. So if that's the case, if you have a large property and you're allowed to carry on your own private property, then I would say it's absolutely probably worth doing what you're asking. If that's not even the case, then there's not a whole lot of utility you gain. It's just something you want to own. Um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Zach. I'm currently in Missouri, and I have a question about 
a, doing a shipping container, um, little house or uh, dwelling of some sort, and doing it um, buried or partially buried, and possibly putting that on contour, um, like in 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 the grounds. I'm just wondering if that would be a good idea or a bad idea, um, but kind of putting it in in a contour sort of uh, swale sort of configuration. Um, if that if that would be a possibility, or if that would sound like a really poor idea somehow. Uh, thanks a lot, and uh, take care. Bye. Please don't take this the wrong way, but uh, building an underground house of any shape, size, or uh, uh, configuration, and, and building it into a swale-like structure is a terrible idea. It's absolutely the worst thing you could ever do to your housing. And the reason is a swale does what? A swale holds water in the ground. And when you put in a structure that you're going to live and dwell in, you want water to go away from it, not into it. All you would be doing is setting yourself up for flooding and increased uh, exposure to rust and things like that with a shipping container. So uh, a swale and an underground house do not go together unless the house is upgrade, the swale is downgrade, and the runoff created by the house goes in the swale. That's about the only way those two elements connect. So it is a terrible, horrible, awful idea. Don't do it. Um, what you actually want to do is create drainage when you put anything into the ground so that it doesn't flood. So it's, it's about getting water to go away. So you're talking about, you know, once you have your hole dug, a big pile of uh, well-drained gravel at the bottom to drain things out and thinking about other things and other ways to do this. Can you bury a shipping container? It's been done. It's been done effectively, and it's been done in catastrophic ways as well. You absolutely have to frame it out uh, significantly so that it will hold the weight of even two or three inches of dirt on the roof. Um, and, and it, I mean, you, you really don't understand the amount of weight that you put on a roof. Shipping containers are extremely strong when they're stacked on top of each other, but they're designed in a way where the load is taken by the sidewalls and the four corners, and mostly the four corners. If you walk on top of a shipping container, when you walk into the center of it, you will, you will literally feel yourself drop down. It's, and if you bounce on it, it'll ba-doom, 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 ba-doom. It's not very strong across that roof. So it either has to be framed out with, with really great, good timber, or it has to be framed out with steel. And that is the only way to make it safe to bury. If I was going to do this, I would be much more inclined to put one into the ground 60 or 70% and berm up and create a sloping berm structure away from it to help with drainage, and I could plant lots of stuff there, and it would do a lot of insulating, and maybe not even bury the roof. Um, and you still have to structurally uh, support it, or to go ahead and bury the roof under about three or four inches of, of soil and plant something up there that can grow in that shallow soil uh, to help with fully, uh, you know, and then you got to think about how do I get light into it. Now I've got... Other, you know, if I fully bury it, I can't put in a skylight or something like that. So, uh, I'd be more intent on making an earth berm structure uh, with maybe multiple shipping containers, uh, and that would allow me use of skylighting and things like that to bring light into the structure during the day. I think that'd be very valuable. And there's paint that basically is an insulating paint you could paint that roof with that has a very high R value for a paint, and that would help keep everything cool, 
or warm, depending on the time of the year that you're in. And the Earth Contact's going to do a lot for that. I actually have an episode that we uh, that we did on uh, on on shipping containers, and I will have a link uh, to it in today's show notes. And uh, you can check that out. We did that back in the 500s. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, if you went to the survivalpodcast.com, put shipping container into the search box, you'd find it. But if you just go to episode 1188, today's episode, and go into the show notes, you'll find a link to it. A uh, gentleman that built a quite intense structure using these things in Oklahoma, uh, basically a compound. Uh, a really, really awesome high level, uh, thing. But he, you know, he broke it down to how to do one. Uh, I don't think it's a terrible idea to bury a shipping container. I will tell you that if I was going to build an underground structure, it's, it's probably not the route that I would take. I would probably do something more along the lines of what Mike Ayler does. Um, and if you want to check out Mike Ayler, I'll have a link to his books on Amazon. I think it's called The $50 and Up Underground House is his book. He also has one on underground greenhouses. Uh, Paul Wheaton has his Wafati structure, which is a modified version of the, the Ayler structure. I think both of those are probably better. Uh, what I'll say to this is, I love Paul, uh, but I can't really endorse a Wafati until I see one. Uh, I know they're working on some now on Paul's new property until one's built. Uh, I'm gonna say I'd go my Gaylor. Paul, you got to build one, brother. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Greg from Wilmington, Delaware. I got a question. Uh, how do you decide to repair or replace a car? Uh, I got a 2007 Honda Fit with about 233,000 miles on it. Yeah, I put about 700 miles a week on my car, so uh, I pretty much live out of it. Um, right now, I just found out I got a bad comp AC compressor on it. And uh, among other things, a cracked windshield, and I had a light come on indicating there was a possible catalytic converter issue. Uh, but that, that was a while ago, and I haven't seen the light come back on. Uh, other than that, it really seems to run pretty good. Um, you know, talking to my wife, she says she doesn't want to, doesn't think it's a good idea to pay for a, uh, uh, pay, pay to repair a car that, you know, it's really not worth the, the repair, cost of the repairs we're putting into it. But my point is, if the car is going to last a few more years, you know, it might be worth paying for the repairs now rather than getting another car payment. Um, so, I don't know. It's a gamble. I don't like to gamble, so I just figured I'd call you and find out. And Dave Ramsey's big on getting a one- to two-year-old car, but I'm, I'm just not real comfortable doing that. You know, I've known some people that have bought used cars off of uh, off of the lot and found out that the Carfax didn't, re didn't reflect uh, flooding that they had and uh, other damages. Long story, which I won't get into, but... Uh, Anyway, just just wondering what you think. Thanks. Well, this is a place where the guy you mentioned, Dave Ramsey, and I actually agree, and, and not so much on buying the two or three year old car, uh, but on how to, how to answer your original question. How do I decide whether it's worth to repair this car or not? If I have to put enough money into a car that after I'm done repairing the car, if I put the car up for sale, I would sell the car for less than the cost of repairs. The answer is no, don't do it. And it's the same answer every time, and it will never make sense and uh, to do it, and I'll tell you why. It, it would be better then to take all of the money that you would get, that you would put into the car, and use it to purchase a car that clearly would be better. All right. So if I have to put $4,000 into a car, and after I was done 
With that car, I could sell it for $2,800. I have a $2,800 car I just spent $4,000 on. That means I could go out on the used market, maybe not buying one that's, you know, brand new or whatever, or even, you know, certified, pre-owned, you know, three years old, save 10 grand. But I could obviously then buy for $4,000 a car on the market with a market rate where that car would be a better bet than the one I've just fixed. Now, I've seen people buy cars and then they break gas, right? And this is the part where people, no one's ripping you off, right? If you buy a used car and it breaks down, unless it's something that was intentionally hidden, it broke down because it's an old car. You can put all this money in your car, okay? And then a week from now or a month from now or a year from now, you don't know when, something else can break, It's no more or less likely to happen with your car than when you buy from somebody else, especially if you look it over, maybe, and if you don't know how to look over a car right, then tell the person, I'd like to have this checked out by a mechanic, find a local mechanic shop that will do a pre-purchase vehicle inspection, it will generally cost you about 50 bucks. You, you leave, you know, you, you drive it over there, you have it inspected, and you come back with the inspection in your hand. That 50 bucks is well spent. Often it will allow you to effectively negotiate the price of the vehicle down. Okay? So it's not a bad thing in any way, shape, or form to do that. Often, and I've had one instance where I did that, there were some problems with the vehicle. The problems weren't that big a deal. Two of them were things that really should be done. One was a thing that needed to be done. Um, the repair costs weren't that bad. Um, and I was able to actually, in the end, save more in the negotiation with the guy selling the vehicle than it costed me to fix it. So, you know, that's when you're buying a used vehicle, that's uh, $50 bucks well spent. That's generally what I've seen, $35 to $50 for uh, a repair shop to do that pre-vehicle inspection for you. Don't drive around looking for one. Pick the phone up and call a couple of them. And and, and you know what? A pre-vehicle inspection is the one time you really don't have to worry about being ripped off because that guy knows you're not going to be like, just do the work. He knows you got to buy that car and you may or may not come back. You may or may not buy it. They're pretty good about just telling you whatever you want to know because they actually want to find the problems and fully articulate them too because they want to earn your trust at that point. So um, that that's their – but on the original question, that's what I'd say. If you're going to put four grand into a car and when you're done with it, you could turn around and sell that car for $5,000, it's probably worth doing the repairs. If you're going to put four grand into a car and at the end of it, you could turn around and sell that car for $4,000, exactly what you put into it, it's probably not. And it just gets worse as you go down. Wait a minute, why is that the case? Let's say I can only sell the car right now for $1,500. And if I put $4,000 into it, I could sell it for exactly $4,000. Well, that's $5,500. I'd rather sell it for $1,500, take the $4,000, $5,500, and go out and buy a car that's a better quality car. So it's not necessarily just getting into another car payment. And I understand not wanting to do that. And we're at a point with my, one of my trucks right now where we're kind of like, we need a new vehicle, and we're probably going to buy a new vehicle. And as much as I hate debt, we'll probably put a great big fat down payment on it, finance it for three years, and pay it off early. But we'll probably will finance it because we got great credit, and interest rates are low as hell. And if you do that, they'll throw money at you for like 2% interest in a lot of times. And um, you know, then I have the money, and I, you know, I don't like it either. But, you know... It does make sense in some instances on large purchases. But, you know, I almost guarantee you, you can go out right now, and for with the sound of this, you could probably buy a better car for the same price and then sell the car. And you might say, well, the car is only worth 900 bucks this way. 
It's not hundred dollars. You don't have it. It gets rolled into the purchase price of the new vehicle. Um, it just doesn't make sense to put more money into a vehicle than the vehicle itself is worth after the repair. If you can put $2,000 of repair into a vehicle, and when you're done with that, you're looking at an $8,000 vehicle, that is an easy repair call to make. If you're going to put two grand into a vehicle, and when you're done, that car will sell for $2,250, I'm looking for a new car at that point. I'm looking for a new car, and I'm going to let somebody else have my problem. Anyway, that's how I look at it, and that's pretty much how Dave Ramsey looks at it as well. Uh, when it comes to buying a vehicle... And you're going to buy a vehicle and you're going to say, well, I'm going to buy a two-year-old vehicle with 30,000 miles on it and do better than buying a brand new one. That's not always the case. You have to you have to judge the vehicle, the resale value, the interest rate, payment on it. Since Dave's always talking about paying cash, um, the interest rate's not as important. But again, um, there's, there's two things I'm okay with debt on. And one is a sensibly priced, well-financed uh, well and, and significantly down-paid-upon vehicle. Uh, and the other is a house. And, and those are pretty much the only two things that I'll incur debt on. Uh, Dave agrees with the house, but not the car. But uh, we don't agree on everything, especially gold, where he's wrong. Anyway, let's take a, uh, another call. Hi, my name is Kathy. I'm calling from Arizona. Anyway, I was listening to your podcast from 8-9 about uh, the uh, gentleman that was having a hard time having his mother you know, buy into the survivalism and things like that. I myself am 60-plus, and I have several of my friends that are 60-plus, and we are very much into to the survivalism. And the problem that we're having is how to tell our children that are anywhere from, you know, in their 40s to, you know, earlier about it because they're not buying into it. You know, I think they're part of the sheeple um generation here so if you have or anybody has any comments on how to tell our children in the 40 and younger group how to uh you know get into this survivalism and uh you know the way our government is and everything i'd much appreciate that thank you very much love your show bye-bye It's interesting to have that one just completely flipped around a week later. Last week, we had somebody call in and say, you know, I'm in my 40s, and I'm trying to convince my older parents that are in their 60s that they need to be taken, and they don't want to hear it. And I talked about powdered butt syndrome, which is also something Dave Ramsey and I agree on. Now you got to flip back the other way. Here's the reality. This is, this is I think, the, the, the reality that's missing. It's not about younger versus older, older versus younger. Now, it is when you're trying to tell your parents about money or life or philosophy. If somebody's wiped your butt when you were a baby, they generally don't listen to you about things like that because they will always see you as their kids. So on some levels, in that direction is. But when it really comes down to it, it doesn't matter if it's a country boy telling a city boy, a city boy telling a country boy, a young telling an old, brother telling a sister, sister telling a brother. There's a reason the person that's not prepared for the future isn't prepared in the first place. And it's not just they won't listen to you. They won't listen to anybody. It's all about that normalcy bias. When you start to point out, hey, what you think is true about the safety of your future, it's uncomfortable. 
I've just had this conversation with my brother-in-law, and I watched it play out, where he's come a long way in understanding this type of thing now. And, um, you know, he's he's getting there, but he really doesn't want to talk about it. Where we were talking about it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I told him about how Fort Worth as a city has a lot of financial problems, and they're almost as bad as some other places that, you know, you think of like Chicago and L.A. It's not the You know, Texas wide has this problem, but it's not like we don't have, you know, Houston and Fort Worth both have some real unfunded pension liability issues as well. And, uh, that hit a little bit close to home, but he still agree with that. We started talking about what the, what it would be like if the economy melted down. And, uh, when he's, you know, I said it won't be like Road Warrior and Mad Max. He's like, no, no, it wouldn't be like that. I said, but what you would see is things like happened in Argentina where you've got someone pulling out a gold chain and cutting off enough links on it so that they can buy groceries this week. And the conversation was over. And it wasn't rudely over. It was just very much over. It hit. It hit the solar plexus. I could see it. I don't want to think about that. That's what you're dealing I don't care if it's you're 60 telling a 40-year-old, you're 40 telling a 60-year-old, you're, you're 25 telling an 18-year-old, you're 25 telling a 55-year-old. It doesn't matter. It is the same dynamic. I'm not ready for this yet. I don't want to hear this. Is it the sheeple generation? Maybe, maybe not. Sheeple is a pretty broad spectrum analysis of somebody. And sheeple basically follow whatever the TV tells you. That's how you know they're a sheeple. If they are dyed in the wool to Fox News or CNN, either direction, they're a sheeple. If they're not, then they're not a sheeple. There's, there's degrees of awareness, right? It's not an on-off switch. And one thing that people in our world need to understand, people that have really woken up to it and said, you know what, I'm going to make sure there's extra food, I'm going to manage my money better, I'm going to produce some of my own food, I'm going to have uh, some level of independence, I'm not going to be a slave to debt, I'm going to live the modern survival lifestyle. It's probably not the case that one day you were dyed in the wool, regular, everyday Joe in suburbia, following the path that society's laid out for you, and then the next day, even if you couldn't physically do anything, mentally went, you know what, this is wrong, I'm going to do this now. You probably decoupled in degrees. And the deeper the brainwashing, the longer the brainwashing, and the more vested the person is into the brainwashing, the more stages of decoupling they need before they're finally willing to go, yeah, this is a mess. And everything may not be okay. And I need to take full responsibility right now for my future and my my family's future and my community's future. It's, it's, it's a long decoupling. And it's also, a, you know, as soon as you do it, it's like paying off just one facet, paying off debt, you know? What does that mean? That means that, the, that all of the, the fun has to stop. The partying has to stop. You know, Dave Ramsey says, we, you might sell so much stuff, the kids are afraid you're going to sell them next. And it might be that, and that's not comfortable. And realizing that all this stuff that you thought you could just do forever, you can't do anymore, or you can't do for a while, it's hard. I'm still just on debt. Now, imagine when some, you're asking somebody to accept the fact that Social Security might not be there, and... Uh, You know, especially when you're 60 and you're thinking, what are you worried about? You're going to be the one that gets it. And a lot of times that person doesn't even disagree with you. You know what they're really thinking? That 42-year-old, you're telling Social Security's not going to be there and you're 64? You're going to get yours. I'm not going to get mine. I don't have time to worry about that right now. i got a life to live. Get out of my way. Don't rub it in. Most 40-somethings today know they're not getting Social Security. Or if they do, it's going to be freaking worthless when they do. 
And most of them, because the TV tells them what to think, think you're the reason that's the case. It's you greedy old people. You want too much now. You're not getting very much. <laughs> the whole system is the problem. The whole system is the problem. So how do you reach people? It's the same thing I keep saying. I don't care if it's reaching younger, reaching older, reaching brother, reaching sister. It's action. Live your life in a way that makes somebody look at it and go, I want that. And then eventually they'll ask you how to get there. And the more you push, the less likely they will be to ask. Think about it this way. If I keep telling you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And every time you hear me say that, you think, there, he's wrong. I'm right. And you, you're not just denying it. You're not being a sheeple. For whatever reason, you have a set of facts and interpretations in front of you where you're absolutely convinced you're right. And you push back and you say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know, I'm like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And you start making decisions in your life. And I say, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Now you become vested in the fight. And you have to justify the purchase or the action. And eventually one day you sit down and you look at everything and you go, damn it, he's right, he was right all along. How hard is it to you for you now, though, to come to me, especially if you're a relative, and say, Jack, man, I'm sorry I didn't listen. You were right about all this and all of this was a mistake. Help me. It's hard. It's psychologically very hard. Every argument, every time we've disagreed about it, it's going to come up in your, your gut, and you're like, you're still going to feel the need to defend. You might even start doing it and hide it from me. I could be an asset and help you. I could help you avoid mistakes early on when the panic sets in. Oh, crap, it's, and you go, you've got time. Let's just figure this out. But it won't happen because, and this, this is not just... 60-year-old talking to 40-year-old. This is 40-year-old talking to 60-year-old. And any other permutation, it's the same dynamic. But if I just say, hey, if you ever want to know about what we do here, let me know. Then it's easy for you to come in and go, yeah, I'm not in on all this stuff and all, but you guys you guys have some chickens. Weird thing about getting some chickens. How does it, you know, it's that simple. Oh, you got that kit you brought out when we were at the picnic, and you put that kit together in case something went wrong, and like nothing really went wrong, but all the kids were getting bit by mosquitoes, and you had, you know, what else is in there? I mean, see, that's the first step, and the person feels comfortable with it because they haven't been told you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and they haven't had to justify to you why they've been doing what they've been doing for so long, and they don't feel like you're being critical and you're going to come down on them and say, see, I was right. Right? They feel like you're a, a person that's got it together. And what do you do if they don't ever come to that conclusion? We are all free human beings on planet Earth, and someone else isn't wrong just because they don't behave the way that you want them to. That's not just libertarian philosophy. It's the truth. And you don't get to decide whether your 40-something son or your 68-something uh, parent decides whether or not they want to take responsibility for their life or not. All you can do is raise them or advise them when they ask you and, and do the best you can. And in the end, adult human beings make their own choices, and that's the way that it should be, even when those choices are wrong. Let's take another question. Hello, Jack. This is Yano from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm looking for your thoughts on the viability of a sharpening business as part of a strategy to start a business in the little time I have, develop it, and be able to make the transition to living in a more rural, rural environment. 
I've always worked with computers and have a client services background, and I'm currently working as an analyst in one of the big oil companies in Calgary. When we visit smaller rural communities, there are a few jobs, and those jobs that are available don't line up with my current skills or experience. We have small children right now, and I have little time to try and develop a skill set that would be of use in such a smaller community and something more practical. I figured it would be more realistic to get away to my shop every night and practice sharpening a knife or two before going to bed and slowly building up my skills. I could put up a website, bring in some cash at farmer's markets, and so on. I just figured it was a more realistic opportunity given the untapped uh, opportunities at uh, farmer's markets here. Um, your show is a great inspiration for me. When I'm feeling the big city blues, thank you for all the great content that you put out. Thanks. When we lived in Arkansas in Hot Springs, we had a farmer's market that I went to a lot. And I paid attention to what was going on there and who was successful. And there were exactly three people that were always successful at the farmer's market. One was a guy that did pastured poultry and other things like that, and he sold every chicken he brought to there. And he picked up a lot of business for things like rabbits and pork that he wasn't able to sell at the farmer's market, but he was basically able to inform the person that was buying a bird from him, hey, if you come out and buy directly from me at my farm, I can sell you rabbits and I can sell you hogs, and we do a half hog and somebody butchers it for you and all that. He was very successful. There was a lady that did baked goods and herb plants and had a very diverse portfolio of stuff there. So you could buy a, a, a jar of uh, pickles from her. You could buy a jar of chow-chow from her. You could buy a loaf of bread. You could buy live plants, herbs, and she sold like crazy. You saw people buying stuff from her all the time. Um, and I'm going to tell you who didn't do well. Most of the people selling produce didn't do well. There was one family that I remember very well because they were Oriental and they would they were really pushy salespeople. Like you, you buy this, you buy this. And no, I'm not going to buy that. Um, but you know, you would if you went there early, they would have like a thing one dollar, and they would have little groups of tomatoes, and it'd be like three tomatoes for a dollar, which isn't a bad price. Um, but that's what it would be. And if you would go like a half hour before it would close, there'd be like seven or eight tomatoes for a dollar in their little piles that they would make it all. Everybody else that was trying to sell things like tomatoes and cucumbers and stuff like that to people in a rural community that were coming to a farmer's market didn't do well. Why? Because most of us had all the cucumbers and tomatoes and things like that we could possibly want growing in our own backyards. We were of that mindset. That's why we were at a farmer's market. So we were there to buy the things we couldn't grow or didn't grow well. And trying to sell us the things that we were growing already didn't work well. What I've saved to the last part is the guy that probably did the best was the guy that did sharpening of knives. He charged $5 a knife, and if you brought him a lot of knives, he'd make you a deal maybe do them for four. And I saw people come in with whole kitchen knife sets every week and, and do, you know, 20 knives at four bucks a knife, 80 bucks. Bam. All right. And I, you know, and I would honestly, I, I'm pretty good at sharpening knives, but I have some knives that are a little tougher to sharper, harder steels and things like that. And a lot of times if we were going down there, I'd like, yeah, that guy's going to be there today. And I grab like my buck 110. That's a hard ass knife to sharpen. It really is. Um, not that I can't do it, but it just takes a long time on doing it on a stone. Uh, so I take it down. I'd give it to him for five bucks and I had walk away. And as we were leaving, I'd come back and pick it up five bucks. And it's, it's, you know, half hour work. I don't have to do. Uh, I value my time at more than $10 an hour, uh, and he could do it in freaking a minute. Now, how do he do it in a minute? This is what I would advise you. If you're serious about going into sharpening business with knives, 
get and learn how to use a good belt sharpener. He had this belt sharpener uh, and these jigs where you could do, you know, whatever angle you wanted to put on the knife, you could put on the knife and do it perfectly every time. And it, it pulled away just the way Patrick Rohrman uh, teaches you to sharpen a knife by pulling versus pushing because you're pulling the steel and it, it's, it's a, a superior way to do it. And she, he could put an edge on a knife like you wouldn't believe very, very quickly with that. Uh, he was kind of secretive about where he got the daggone thing from, didn't want to tell me, but there's a lot of different sharpeners like that out there. I'm like, dude, I don't want to buy a $500 knife sharpener to avoid paying you five bucks, and I don't want to come down here and compete with you, but he just didn't want to. He was like, I don't remember where I got it, whatever. Um, but he did well. He did very well. Anybody walking by that looked at what he was doing that had a pocket knife on him that really wasn't quite sharp enough would be like, five bucks here. Um, and I, I would guess that that guy was taking in at least several, several hundred dollars uh, two days a week. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you that success, but I'm telling you part of why he was able to do it was that he was, uh, he was, he was able to do it fast. He made the investment in the equipment. I think everybody should know how to sharpen with a, with a whetstone, uh, with an oilstone. Uh, and uh, use a butcher steel to keep an edge on a knife that's, that's suited for using a butcher steel. Uh, I think most of the sharpening, easy sharpen tools that you pull a knife through or whatever are crap. Um, just about every one of those little, you know, this is the easy sharpener, or this is the mechanical sharpener, or whatever that you see like at home shows and stuff like that. And look how sharp it makes your knife are crap. Um, there's a right way to sharpen a knife. It involves a, it involves a, a, a sharpener that's designed to sharpen knives, not something that's designed to make a monkey be able to pull a knife through. I've never seen any of those, uh, you know, ceramic sticks that you pull the knife through and little plastic things or whatever that actually do really sharpen a knife. Belt sharpeners work, and they have very, very fine belts. You can take the knife down one level, then another level, then a third level, and you can put a hell of an edge. Is it the kind of edge that if you really work a knife on, on a whetstone, you can get not quite. You can't get those micro serrations where when you don't just cut hair off your arm, but you, you take it across your hairs and you're not even touching your skin, you feel it pulling. Like it's, it's very hard to get a knife that sharp with a belt sharpener, but it saves you a lot of time, you know, even if you want that. And it's certainly sharp enough for the clientele you would have that you're talking about. So that's that's what I would take the approach of. If you're going to sit around and sharpen knives with stones and try to make money on it, be prepared to make about $10 an hour. And that's not enough. Uh, you might be able to say, well, if I worked, you know, maybe if you think it's enough. Maybe you say, well, $400 a week is all the money we need if we're going to, and maybe it is, I don't know. But <laughs> you're not going to do it in a 40-hour work week. It's going to take a long-ass time. If you're taking that approach. So I would, yeah, start learning how to use basic tools and all and how to take that edge to the next level. But if you want to do this as a profession, I would certainly look into getting a belt sharpener or something that will, will take you and make you much more efficient and fast. Um, and a belt sharpener pulling away with a long belt so the blade doesn't heat up. You don't want a short belt sharpener. It can get a lot, it can get, build heat up a lot faster. Doesn't have as much space to dissipate over. Um, those are great. And uh, if I was going to do a sharpening business, that's that's what I would do. And if I was going to go into the farmer's market world, I would be doing value-added product. I would do it, be doing meat, or I would be doing sharpening. Those are one of the three I'd pick, so I do think it's a good pick. With that, I think we've wrapped up another great show. A lot of diverse topics out there uh, today, and I appreciate you guys calling in. Remember to call in for the expert counsel. The best thing to do is call in and say, this question is for expert counsel member, fill in the blank, 
Do your question like you normally would. Question or comment first, followed by details. Uh, and uh, then immediately email me and say, Jack, I just called a question in for expert council member so-and-so uh, from phone number XYZPDQ, whatever your number is, and that will help me be more likely uh, to get it over to the right council member. Again, I want to give you our council members by name again today and who they are and what they do. Frank Sharp, Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants, handles all things with weapons and security. Joe Nobody, more of the bug-out and societal breakdown stuff, the really dark side of the tactical world. Darby Simpson from DarbySimpson.com, the uh, farmer that is your friend uh, is Darby. Uh, and I'll tell you what, if you have like homesteading, livestock questions, stuff like that, he's a great resource Ben Falk of Whole, Whole Systems Design, amazing permaculturist. He's done amazing things in that northeastern climate. Paul Wheaton, outside-the-box thinker, brilliant guy, good friend. And if you have permaculture questions, uh, you know, kind of divide them up between Ben and Paul. You can ask one or the other. Or you can let me make that call. So this is either for, uh, for Ben or Paul. And based on how I know them, I'll, I'll try to you know pick it. And maybe one day I'll get a question that I'll say, Let's see what they both have to say and see how similar or different they are because sometimes we really learn from that. Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus. If you have questions on military vehicles, military surplus, bug-out vehicles, he's the guy. Communication, especially wireless. If you have questions on ham radio and things like that, Tim is awesome. Stephen Harris, if it's energy, Harris has an answer. And Chef Keith Snow, if you want to be hungry while you're listening to the show, ask him a question about cooking. He'll make you want to eat now. Uh, so those are the expert council members. Again, let me know if you think that uh, Kerry Davis would be a good addition for the medical side of things. I think he'd be great, especially for the types of questions that will come in here. Um, I, I think that he'd probably have the time to do it as well because uh, I can make it really easy for him. And I think he had that kind of direct, immediate answer that uh, you know we need in a lot of these med medical questions. Uh, but I'd love to have him on board. And I'm asking you guys, you know, do you do you as, as a as a uh, listener endorse that decision after hearing yesterday's uh, interview? Again, if you skip some of the week interviews sometimes and listen to the weekend uh, episode 1187. Uh, Carrie Davis from Dark Angel Medical. Uh, give that a listen, and, and over the weekend, let me know if there's enough interest in it. I'll approach him with uh, being a member of the council if he so would choose to uh, to do that. Um, I also want to remind you, I do have that MSB sale going on. Uh, MSB AUG, a MSB AUG, all lowercase letters, ten dollars off the first year. If you've been thinking about the MSB, now would be the time to join. That's a little sale I do once in a while to get people off the fence, so to speak. If you're already an MSB member, thank you. Um, as you look towards your weekend this weekend, I want you to really, you know, think about what can you do. Can you do one thing this weekend to further your independence and liberty? And if you can, what is that one thing? And then do it. Do something this weekend to to further your preps, to further your independence further your self-sufficiency if you can't do a lot and all you can do is maybe add a couple more cans of something to the pantry do that if you can get out and dig that garden bed you've been putting off do that if you have a book you've been wanting to read that's going to teach you how to manage livestock or something like that do that if you have a if you have a business you've been kicking around and you just think I need to get down and write a business plan for this do that if you've been saying I want to be a podcaster or a blogger you've just been putting it off go whatever it, I don't care what it is If it's I haven't been spending enough time with my wife or my husband or I haven't been spending enough time with my kids and that's just as important as everything else that we need to be doing, uh, then I'm going to take it and I'm going to do it this weekend. Whatever it is, 
because holding that family together, holding that community together, and having the ability to stand, that's what's going to take you through the future. That's what you need to be focused on. That's what this show's all about. That's what this community's all about. And I thank you for being part of it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.